Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Let me share some amazing facts with you about the human body, okay, about your body. Let's start with your cardiovascular system. Your heart, uh, if you live to an average age, your heart is going to beat over 3 billion times. Over 3 billion times. If all the blood vessels in your body were laid end to end, they would circle the, encircle the earth not once or twice or three times, but four times around the world. Amazing. Okay, what about your brain? Well, 100,000 chemical reactions occur in your brain every second. Yeah, your brain. Okay, what about your lungs? The surface area of your lungs is about equal to the size of a tennis court. I'm not making this up. Okay, your bones. You were born with about 300 bones, but by the time of your death, that number will drop to 206. Don't ask me to explain it. Okay. About a quarter of your bones are in your feet. Your, your skull is made up of 29 different bones, so you are indeed a bonehead, all right? <laughs> Just saying. Okay. Your, your, your skin, your skin is the largest organ in your body. It comprises 15% of your total weight. You shed about 600,000 particles of skin every hour. So quit complaining about your dog shedding, all right? You, you have between two and 5,000 sweat glands. Here's one I love. You are bioluminescent. Your, your body actually shines. Now, you cannot see your body's light with the naked eye, but your body shines. How about your mouth? You produce as much saliva in your lifetime as would fill two swimming pools. Yuck. Okay? Your teeth, the only part of your, your body that can't heal themselves which is why you need to see the dentist, all right? Your, your tongue print is as unique as your fingerprints. Two to 4,000 taste buds, that's what you've got. And they're not only in your mouth, you've got taste buds in your throat, you've got taste buds in your nose. Did you know that your nose not only smells, your nose also tastes? It does. And, and speaking of your nose, though, and, and smelling, your nose can distinguish between one trillion different smells. And, by the way, your, your nose never stops growing. That is not good news for some of us, all right? Your muscles, you have more than 600 muscles. Your strongest muscle is your jaw. Now, I don't know if that's because of all the talking you do or, or all the eating you do, but, you know, the strongest... You, you use 17 muscles when you smile and 43 muscles when you frown. So, for goodness sake, smile, okay? It's a whole lot easier. Uh, your tongue is made up of eight interwoven muscles. 50% of your hand strength is in your pinky. 50% of, of your hand strength. I mean, the human body is amazing. And, and just for the fun of it, let me add one final fact. You have 67 different species of bacteria living in your belly button. So wash that bad boy, okay? Yeah. All right, welcome to week three of a four-part series on creation. All Creation Sings is the name of, of the series. Science and Scripture in Harmony is the subtitle. Uh, last week, we talked about the creation of the world. Today, 
Uh, we're going to talk about the creation of people, specifically the first humans, Adam and Eve. So I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2, okay? It's right in the inside flap of your Bible, the front cover. And there's an outline in your program that you're going to want to follow along, either in the hard copy or, or online. And let's begin with verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. Follow along as I read. Uh, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, for this account of creation. Now, Genesis 2 begins with a reminder of what happened in Genesis 1. Uh, the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. So uh, chapter 1 was a colorful description of the creation of the world. Last week we learned that there are three basic Christian interpretations of Genesis 1, interpretations that are held by theologians and scientists who faithfully follow Jesus and are, are passionately devoted to the Bible as the Word of God. The first interpretation of Genesis 1 uh, is what we call the literal, uh, one of the names of it, the literal interpretation. Genesis 1 describes six days in which God created the heavens and the earth, and this view says those were 24-hour days. So the literal interpretation, also called the 24-hour day interpretation. Second interpretation we looked at last weekend is the day-age interpretation. Okay, it's possible to read the word day, it's the Hebrew yom, in chapter 1 of Genesis as, as not a 24-hour day, but as an age. So God did not create the, the heavens and the earth in six 24-hour days, but in six ages, the day-age interpretation. The third interpretation notes the highly poetic language of Genesis 1, and it concludes, this is not a science textbook description. This is a literary masterpiece using figurative language to simply praise God as creator. But it, it's not intended to tell us how God created the world or how long it took God to do it. Okay, this is the evolutionary creation interpretation. Now, I got a lot of feedback after last weekend's sermon. Surprise. <laughs> you know, welcome center conversations and texts and emails and Facebook postings. And I got to tell you, what, what surprised me is it was overwhelmingly positive and supportive. So thank you. Thank you for your willingness to learn. And, and I apologize that I'm not able to answer all the questions that are, are posed to me. Just wouldn't be enough days in the, in the week to respond to all the questions, but I want to keep pushing you back to the resources that uh, Pastor Clayton and I are recommending over the course of this series. Uh, I've been preparing for the series for over a year in my reading. I've read, oh, probably at least 10 full-length books on, on the topic of uh, Genesis and creation and the three different interpretations. Uh, I've read numerous articles. I've, I've read uh, major parts of a Christian college science textbook. Uh, I have interviewed scientists who are Christians uh, on the topics that we're, we're covering. I've looked at YouTube postings and videos and, and so on. I went to a three-day conference for theologians on the topic of creation. So what you're getting last weekend and this weekend for me is like the tip of the iceberg. So if you want to dig deeper, let, let me recommend again the three books 
uh, that, 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 that we've talked about in this series. The first is The Language of God, and it's written by Christian geneticist Francis Collins, who headed up the, the, uh, uh, the Human Genome Project. Yeah, brilliant guy. Se second book is a book that compares interpretation two and three of Genesis, the two interpretations we're probably less familiar with. It's called Old Earth or Evolutionary uh, Creation, and it's a compilation of the writings of a bunch of Christians who are scientists and theologians. And the last book is Can Science Explain Everything, uh, written by a really, really smart mathematician who, who taught mathematics at Oxford University for years, Dr. John Lennox. Dr. John Lennox. So today, uh, we're going to move from the Bible's creation of the world to what the Bible says about the creation of humans. Now, if you missed last week's sermon, uh, let me just say it's, it's really difficult to catch you up to speed with everything you missed. And so there are aspects of our weekend sermon th th this round that you may not understand. So please go back and, and take a look at what you, you, you missed online. The other thing I would say is if there was something uh, that you didn't like about what was said last week, I'd also encourage you to go back and see if you heard it the way you thought you heard it. So I had several community group leaders get back to me and say, you know, as we had robust discussions in our groups about what you taught, there were uh, occasionally times when people would say, well, I didn't like what Pastor Jim said about this, and the rest of us would say, but he didn't say that. That's not what he said. So it goes with preaching, all right? So sometimes people think that they heard one thing, so if you thought you heard something you disagreed with, I encourage you, go back and listen again. Maybe I didn't say what you think I, you know, what you think you heard me say. Is that, that right? Yeah, and maybe I did, and I did bug you, all right? So, uh, Four aspects, four things that we learn about the creation of humanity from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That's our subject this weekend. And the first has to do with people's home. Okay, people's home. I read to you uh, from Genesis 2 a few moments ago uh, that recaps Genesis 1 about the heavens and the earth that God created. And, and one of the uh, marvelous things about this, uh, this new earth, this earth that was created new by God, is that it was incredibly hospitable for these first humans. It was a perfect home for them. I don't know if you've ever uh, gone someplace where your hosts went out of their way to make you feel at home. Uh, maybe it was an Airbnb or it was an all-inclusive resort or you went to Disney World or uh, you were an exchange student in Brazil and, and whoever hosted you went out of their way to make you feel at home. You ever have that experience? Uh, some years ago, Sue and I went to a, a marriage conference, and it was being held outside Atlanta at the Chick-fil-A Retreat Center. If, if you ever have an opportunity to go there for anything, a business conference or whatever, it's simply fantastic. So uh, we jumped on a plane, we flew down to Atlanta, we rented a car, we uh, drove to the Chick-fil-A Retreat Center. We were no sooner parked, getting out of our car, and suddenly a golf cart appeared next to us. And they announced that they were the host team and they were going to drive us in the golf cart to the registration and then take our baggage and leave it in our room for us. We thought, well, that's pretty sweet. So we registered and then we went to our room and sure enough, there, our luggage was all there waiting for us. There was a scented candle burning in the room. There was relaxing music playing. It was on a CD player. We went over and saw the, you know, the, the cover of the CD and there was a note on it that said, if you like this music, take the CD home with you. Uh, we, we went 
to the first session an hour or so later and we had to walk across campus and just beautiful rolling hills and all the buildings are built to look like French chalets. Uh, the meals that, that week were fabulous. They were so delicious and in between meals if you wanted to snack they had everything from popcorn to make your own Sunday. It was all for free. I mean, everything the Chick-fil-A did said, this place is here for you, okay? This place is here for you. Well, the same thing could be said about the world that God created. It was amazingly hospitable for the first humans. Freeman Dyson is a, a brilliant physicist and astronomer at Princeton, Princeton University, and he says, the more I examine the universe and the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe, in some sense, must have known we were coming. I love the way he puts that. The universe must have known we were coming. Now, scientists refer to this as the anthropic principle. Anthropic comes from the Greek word anthropos, which means human. So the anthropic principle observes that the universe, and specifically our world, is finely tuned to support human life. Finely tuned. Imagine this, if you would. There is this uh, ginormous planet-creating machine, okay? A planet-creating machine, and it's covered with dials, scores of dials, and every dial represents a life-sustaining factor. So there's a, a dial for the speed of light. There's a dial for the size of the galaxy. There's a, a, di a dial for uh, the pull, the gravitational pull, there's a dial for how much charge an electron gets and so on and, and so forth. And every one of those dials has a, a, a wide spread, you know, could go this way or that way, but every one of them is tuned exactly so, so that life could be sustained on a planet. In fact, if any one of those dials is the least bit off, no life, you know, no humans, Francis Collins, the human genome expert, says the chance that all of these constants would take on the values necessary to result in a stable universe capable of sustaining complex life, life forms is almost infinitesimal. Now let me, let me define almost infinitesimal to you because scientists tell us the chances that we would get a universe at random that would sustain human life is one in 10 to the 133rd power. I mean, that's a number you can't even imagine. That is one, a chance of one in 10 with 133 zeros after it. I mean, you, you get the idea, God, God made planet Earth as the perfect home for people. God made the planet for Adam and Eve. God made the planet for you and me. Number two, what do we learn about people's origin? Okay, that was people's home. Let's go back to chapter two, pick it up at verse seven, see what we learn about people's origin. It says, and the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Okay, here's where we got to go back to the three Christian interpretations of Genesis 1, the creation of the world. Let's take a look at what each of these views says about people's origin. Okay, we'll start with a 24-hour day interpretation. It's simple, it's straightforward. You know, they would say, well, you know, just read Genesis 2, verse 7. 
This is a description of how God made Adam. On the sixth day of creation, God scooped up some dust. He formed it into a man. He breathed his spirit into the nostrils of this man. And instantaneously, Adam was the finished product. A, A human who looked and behaved much like humans today. That's the 24-hour interpretation origin of of, of people. Now, I want to skip to the third interpretation of of Genesis 1 for a moment. I'm going to skip over the day-age position, come back to it in in just a few moments, and I want to go right over to interpretation 3, evolutionary creation. Because this viewpoint is somewhere, uh, you know, it's at the opposite extreme of the continuum from from the 24-hour day, and the day-age is somewhere in between the two. So, the evolutionary creation interpretation holds that God created the world much as scientists say it happened. It started with a big bang. Okay, but it was God who did the creating. Okay, evolutionary creationists are are people who follow Jesus and believe God's word. Okay, so God did the creating. It was God, they say, who then guided the biological process of evolution over billions of years. Again, let me repeat something I said last weekend. There's a difference between evolution as a worldview, and that's totally unacceptable. It denies the existence of God. It denies that God had anything to do with you know, the development of our world and, and, and of people. But, but this view sees God as guiding the process of evolution. Uh, very simple living organisms became more and more complex over time as they adapted to their environment. And then one particular line of living organisms developed into hominids. Okay, if you're taking notes, that's H-O-M-I-N-I-D-S, hominids. We're, we're, we're talking about erect, uh, two-legged, bipedal, primate uh, mammals. In other words, ancestors to people. So let, let me read you what happened next according to an evolutionary creation scientist. Again, a Christ follower, a Bible believer, he writes, at some point when our ancestral population was only a few thousand individuals, perhaps about 200,000 years ago in Africa, God, again, God is central to this, God specifically selected a pair, meaning a pair of hominids, not only to receive special revelation, but also to be miraculously transformed, perhaps by a superabundant gift of the Holy Spirit, to make it possible for them to be truly holy, capable of obeying all of God's spiritual and moral requirements. Do you follow that? Now, that, that's going to sound strange to some of our ears because we, we've never heard anything like that. So, so let me address an immediate objection to that interpretation of people's origin, and then I'm going to draw out a couple of strengths of this interpretation, and, and then I'm going to put an important limit on this interpretation. All right, if you're already feeling overwhelmed like you're drinking from a fire hose, hang on, this is not going to be hard to follow. First, an immediate objection to this interpretation. Some people, when they they hear what I just said about God breathing life into a couple of already existing hominids, they say, but that doesn't look anything like what we just read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. I mean, let, let me read the verse to you again. It says, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. Okay, from the dust, not from an already existing hominid, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So what do the evolutionary creationists say about this verse? Well, they say it's figurative. It is a figurative, not a literal interpretation of people's origin. 
Okay, now, if you missed last week, please, please do not misunderstand what I'm saying here. When I talk about the difference between figurative and literal, you need to understand that figurative does not mean not true. I think I just used a double negative. Is that okay, English teachers? Okay, figurative does not mean not true. See, evolutionary creationists believe that God created Adam just like Genesis 2 verse 7 says he did. This verse is true. However, Genesis 2 verse 7 is not a literal description of the event. They say it is a figurative description. Now, for starters, evolutionary creation, creationists say, you know, how do you form anything out of dust? I mean, stop and think about it. You, if the, the verse said, out of clay, God formed, fashioned a man, we'd say, okay, that makes sense. But out of dust? Pretty hard to do. I mean, try this experiment at, at, at home today. Go, go home, sweep a couple of dust bunnies out from under your bed, and try to shape them. It doesn't work. Okay, and so, so what the evolutionary creationists say is it's, it's not intended to be a literal description. It's figurative. Dust is representative for humanity's mortality. Okay, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, we say it at funerals, right? Mortality. And, and besides that, the evolutionary creationists say this verb here formed, he formed a, a, a man and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. It's a verb that's often used in the Old Testament not to describe the forming of something physical or material, but the forming of something that's non-material, non-physical. So, so in this case... They would say it's the forming of that spiritual life within the body, the already existing body of a hominid. You following me? Okay, let me mention a couple of strengths of this interpretation. First, first strength of it is uh, scientific strength. Okay, genetic, geneticists say, and this would include uh, some Christian geneticists, people like Francis Collins would, would say this, that if you trace human DNA back and back and back and back and back all the way to the beginning of history, what you'll discover is that it, get traced, it gets traced back not to a pair, not to a couple, but to a group, to a pool of people about 10,000 in number. Okay, all the diversity we see in humanity today, they say, is impossible to get from, from a single couple. It had to come from a larger group. That's, again, what the study of uh, geneticism teaches, according to some. Okay, so, so what do the evolutionary creationists say, then, about what's going on in Genesis 2, verse 7? They say, well, perhaps what, what happened is this. After God breathed life, breathed his spirit into these hominids, Adam and Eve, at some time down the road, God also breathed life into the other members of that group, the other 10,000 strong. You say, well, this sounds kind of crazy. Well, it may sound crazy to you. It doesn't sound as crazy to a scientist. And that, then there's another strength of this position. It's the biblical strength. You say, well, what is the biblical strength of this position? When was the last time you read the first few chapters of the book of Genesis? Did you wonder at the fact that humanity seemed to grow, the population seemed to grow rather quickly? Okay, that's always been something I've struggled with a little bit. I, Adam and Eve, they have a son named Cain. Cain kills his brother Abel, right? Remember this story? What happens to Cain? 
He gets banished. He gets exiled. God says, hit the road, Cain. And Cain's objection to God is, whoever finds me will kill me. What do you mean, whoever finds me? Who are the whoever's? He didn't say, whatever finds me will kill me, some beast. Or He said, whoever finds me will kill me. Later on, Cain gets married. Who does he marry? His sister? Possibly. You know, after, the, after Cain gets married, he builds a city, the scripture says. Where does he get all the people with which to build a city? Does he ever scratch your head about those things? Well, the evolutionary creation people say, again, here's what happened. Okay, God, God takes a couple of hominids, Adam and Eve, and he breathes life into them, and they become the first humans. It's just like Genesis 2, verse 7 says. They become the first humans. But it's, they're, they're not the only humans that, that God creates. Shortly thereafter, we don't know how long after that, God breathes his spirit into this large group of 10,000 hominids, and they begin to reproduce. They become living beings. Now you say, well, does Genesis 2, verse 7 say that? No, it doesn't. But does it rule it out? No, it doesn't. See, the fact of the matter is, is, you know, while this is a big book, it doesn't tell us everything about everything in the world, does it? Okay, so is it, is it possible that this is how God did it? The evolutionary creationists say yes. Now, let me put a limit, you know, that, that, that uh, voice a limit that needs to be put on this interpretation. Some evolutionary creationists take things too far when it comes to interpreting the scripture here. They, they say that not only is God forming Adam from the dust a figurative description, but so, so is Adam himself. That Adam is, a, is a, a figurative person. There's no original, there is no literal Adam and Eve. They're just a figurative couple that represent humanity in general. But the problem with this view is that the rest of the Bible takes Adam and Eve quite literally. Now, some people have asked me the question, well, how do you know when the Bible's speaking figuratively or speaking literally? Oh, you, it's extremely obvious, not only within the context, but it's also obvious from what the rest of the Bible says. And if we go to the rest of the Bible and see what it says about Adam, Adam is referred to in Paul's epistles of Romans, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy. Paul says that the first man, Adam, introduced sin and death into the world, which made it necessary for another man, Jesus Christ, to come and rescue humanity. So it would be pretty weird, based on Paul's argument, to think that he's comparing a figurative, a mythical Adam with a literal Christ. No, Adam was a literal dude. And so I would say to you, if you want to hold to the uh, evolutionary creation position, don't give up on a literal Adam. Because if you do, you begin messing with the whole story of salvation. Okay, now we're ready to take a look at the day-age interpretation of people's origin. This is the position that falls somewhere between the 24-hour uh, view and the evolutionary creation view, which is why I saved it for last. The day-age guys believe that God created the world 4.5 billion years ago, just like most scientists would say today. So the six creation days were six ages during which God did his creating. That is a legitimate view, as I've already pointed out, of the Hebrew word yom, the word for day in the opening chapter of Genesis 1. So, so the day-age guys agree not only with uh, 
today's secular scientists, but also with the evolutionary creation guys on how long it took to create the world, 4.5 billion years. However, there are two major ways in which the day-age position differs from the evolutionary creation position with regard to the creation of people. So first, the DA, the, DA, the day-age guys say, and, and again, let me remind you, these are scientists and theologians who are Christ followers, that the evolutionary creation guys go way too far in giving credit to evolution as a biological process. Okay, they, they, they say, you, you evolutionary creation guys, you're like deists. You know what a deist is? Okay, a, a, a de some of our country's founders were deists. Deists believe in God, but they believe in God. The, the analogy that they like to use is that God is a great clockmaker. So at the beginning of time, he creates the world. He winds it up, and then he lets it go, and he steps out and is pretty much uninvolved. And the day-age people say to the evolutionary creation people, I mean, you know, we get the fact that you say God is guiding this biological process of evolution, but it sounds a bit like God is stepping out of things. A little too much. And the, the day-age guys see that God has been far more active in the development of life than that. You know, sure, he has probably nudged along the evolutionary changes over time. But every once in a while, those micro-evolutionary changes, every once in a while, God has stepped in in a major way. Every once in a while, God has created a whole new line of living things. And, and they say you can see this in the fossil record. I mean, there are periods in the fossil record where, where there are just bursts of new organisms. You know, it's, it's not just a case of gradually mutating organisms over time that you see. You see these bursts of new organisms. In fact, the day-age guys say, if God hadn't stepped in, if he hadn't made these dramatic changes, there's no way that we would have the diversity that we see in, in, in life today on our planet. There's no way that we could have seen this diversity on a slow, snail, snow, slow evolutionary pace, you know, in 4.5 billion years. It would have taken trillions of years to get the diversity that we have today. Here, here's a second major way in which the day-age guy, guys differ from the evolutionary creation interpretation uh, with regard to the origin of people. The day-age guys say that God's creation of people was one of those times when God stepped in in a dramatic way. Okay, he didn't just breathe his spirit into a couple of already existing hominids. No, he created a whole new line of living organisms called people. Now, now evolutionary creationists don't believe this. Evolutionary creationists believe in common descent. You've probably heard that before. Common descent. We all evolved from the very first life forms. And even though they say, even, even, even though God did eventually uh, set humans apart by breathing his spirit into Adam and Eve way back when, okay, there is this common descent. And the day-age guys say, no way. Now, we, we may share a common design with other living things. I mean, this is why structurally and DNA and whatever, you'll see such a close similarity between humans and chimpanzees, let, let, let's say. But there's a difference between same design and common descent. Okay, humans, according to the day age, uh, are, are people who are a unique creation of God. There's no common descent here. And so the day-age guys, they would look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, God formed man from the dust of the ground, and they, they would say, we don't have to take that figuratively. 
Sounds like it could be literal to us that God would take dust and because he's God, he'd have a way of forming it into a, a person and breathing life into it and create a whole new type of creature, a human. Why not? Okay, that is uh, the three interpretations in their view of people's origin. Now, I've got two, two more major points to make here. But I want to stop right here because a number of you have already asked me ahead of time, are you going to tell us this weekend what your view is like you did last weekend? And I realized if I didn't, some of you would nag me to death, okay? So I will, I'll tell you where, where I feel, you know, personally, as I've reviewed this stuff and where, where my personal position is, is I'm probably most comfortable in the day-age camp of these three interpretations of human people's origin. Now, however, I do believe that the biblical understanding and explanation of, you know, I, I'm, I'm not opposed to any of the three interpretations, biblically speaking, which, which means that I'm open to, what, you know, wherever science ends up taking us, if something gets proven irrefutably by science, it doesn't rock my world. I, I truly believe that all three of the positions I described to you are acceptable from a biblical standpoint. Okay, now, now we got to decide what the science teaches us. Point number three, here's the third thing we learn about humanity. The first humans from Genesis 1 and 2. People's image bearing. People's image bearing. Now, we've been looking at some really significant differences between the three Christian interpretations of people's origin. But here's something they all agree on. People uniquely bear the image of God. People uniquely bear the image of God. Now, we're going to leave Genesis 2, and we're going to go back a chapter to chapter 1. So if your Bible's open, go over to chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, let me just note, before we talk about people bearing God's image here, that Genesis chapter 1 says that God made us male and female. Friends, this is pretty binary, right? Now, this is very much in conflict with what we're being told today that a person's gender, which flows out of their, their sexuality, is you know, somewhere on a continuum, you know, and that you get to choose where you want to be on that continuum. You know, Genesis 1 says, absolutely not. There's, it's not a continuum. It's, it's male and it's female. Is how God did, And God did it. God determined it. And God determines your sexuality and the gender that flows from it. Now, that's another topic for another day. But we actually have a series planned for this spring on human sexuality. We figured we'd knock out two really big things in the course of a year. And in that series, Pastor Clayton's going to have to do the heavy lifting. All right? So I'm making sure he gets the tough sermons in that series. Right. The first humans, Adam and Eve, were created in God's image, just as you and I were. Now, what does that mean? Well, theologians cite several ways in which people bear God's image and animals don't. Okay, people bear God's image and animals don't. First of all, people are spiritual beings. Spiritual beings. 
You know, we intuitively acknowledge the existence of God. We, we have a propensity toward worship and toward prayer. We recognize a reality beyond this present world, beyond this present life. Second, how do we bear God's image? People are moral beings. We inherently understand the difference between right and wrong. We have a strong, innate sense of justice. We occasionally do things out of selfless altruism because we're moral beings. Uh, Francis Collins, the Christian geneticist, he says, you know, this is not what, what atheistic evolutionists believe. I mean, they believe in survival of the fittest. Everybody's got to look out for themselves. You don't sacrifice for other people in order to survive. You've got to look out for number one. Quite the contrary, Collins writes, humans make sacrifices that lead to great personal suffering, injury, or death without any evidence of benefit. And yet if we carefully examine that inner voice we sometimes call conscience, the motivation to practice this kind of love exists within all of us despite our frequent efforts to ignore it. See, God made us in his image as spiritual beings, as moral beings. Uh, Sue and I were watching an episode of The Good Doctor the, the other night on TV. And it's a hospital show. And the ambulance brings in this guy, and the side of his head has been bashed in. He was on the subway, and a woman was getting bothered by a thug, and he stepped in to, to defend her, and he got himself beat up almost to the point of death. And so as the a group of doctors is standing around the foot of their, their bed, a philosophical conversation gets launched. One of them makes the observation, hey, you know, we're scientists, we're evolutionists. How do we explain what happened here? I mean, this, this guy, evolutionary, you know, survival of the fittest, he should have been protecting himself, staying out of it. Why did he sacrifice himself to protect this lady he didn't even know? And somebody dares to say in the group, well, maybe this is something that God kind of hardwires into us. And I'm watching the show, and I want to yell, yes, you knuckleheads, yes. But Sue doesn't like me yelling at fictional characters on TV, so I didn't, you know. <laughs> But yeah, we're moral beings created in the image of God who sometimes do selflessly altruistic things, which is a reflection of that image, not of animal status. Okay, we're spiritual beings. We're moral beings. Another reflection of God's image is that we're relational beings. We've been made in the image of a three-in-one God, a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, who have been eternally relating to each other in love. And so God makes us like himself, which enables us not only to relate very personally, intimately with God, but within ourselves, with other people, you know, even with animals. Okay, this capacity, this enormous capacity for relationship. Here, I'll give you a fourth one. God made us as intellectual beings, like himself. He's an omniscient, all-knowing God. And he gave us the ability to rationally, uh, logically work through things, to, to speak in ways about abstract and symbolic and complex things. You know, our use of language is unbelievable. We have this incredible ability to create. We create music. We create, uh, create art and literature and scientific inventions. So humans bear God's likeness. We're spiritual beings, moral beings, relational beings, intellectual beings. 
Now, I got to tell you that 24-hour day people and the day age people, they like to give the evolutionary creation people a hard time about this. Okay, let, let me explain why. See, the evolutionary creation people, again, believe in common descent. Okay, that, that we can trace our line back. We all came from the same source. However, you know, let me make it plain that at some point in time, God breathed into Adam and, and Eve, his spirit creating us spiritual beings, humans, first humans. And so they would say, absolutely, uh, you know, humans are distinct from the rest of animals with respect to our spirituality. There is no likeness to animals. However, common descent would say, you know, they're... There's a lot of similarities on those other fronts, uh, morally speaking, relationally speaking, intellectually speaking, with animals. Now, the 24-hour guys and the day-age guys say, are you guys crazy? Really? What one day-age guy puts it this way, kind of tongue-in-cheek. He says, you can raise a chimp in your family and try as you might, you will not be able to get it to talk. Take a human child and you cannot prevent it from learning to talk and repeating in public all the things you say at home. Okay, the difference between humans and other animals as the linguists analyze them are not simply of degree, as if we were simply more developed than the animals are, but of kind. Okay, the differences are not simply decree, uh, of degree, but of kind. People are a different kind because they bear God's image. You get it? Good, you are still awake. Way to go. Let me give you one last thing about the creation of humans has to do with people's rule now I knew that we would run out of time by this fourth point but let me touch on it real briefly and and then we'll close I want you to imagine that uh, water is boiling in a tea kettle on your stovetop okay now somebody asks you the question why is that tea kettle boiling now there are two ways you can answer this question you can answer it scientifically. You could say, well, the water is boiling because the, uh, the, the gas underneath it is heating it to 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, that's why it's boiling. Or you can answer it more personally. You, you, you can describe your, 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 your purpose, as it were, by saying the water is boiling because I want a cup of tea. All right, that's the personal, the purposeful answer to the question. When it comes to the creation of humans, once we have answered the scientific question of how we got here, and that's up to you to decide. What do, you, do you like the 24-hour day view? Do you like the day-age view? Do you like the evolutionary creation view of, of how we got here? We see how they can all be uh, you know, meshed with, with, with Scripture, but we've still got to answer the question of personal purpose. Why? Why did God create us? Okay, let's go back to Genesis 1. I'm going to take another look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that, okay, circle that expression, so that in your Bible. This is going to tell us God's purpose. Why did he do it? So that they may rule, they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals over all the creatures that move along the ground. Drop down to verse 28. So God blessed them, you know, these humans, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Friends, this is, this is an incredible thought here. 
You know, God is the great king over the entire universe, but when he made people in his image, he made us to be his vice rulers. He made us to be his vice rulers. He put us in charge of planet Earth. This is an awesome responsibility. Now, we don't have time to tease out a, a detailed application here, you know, but let me just say that caring for creation probably ought to be pretty important to Christ followers who believe that they have been set in charge over planet Earth to rule in God's stead. I mean, environmental issues ought not to be strictly for tree huggers. They ought to be concerns of people who follow Jesus. You know, so I would imagine, I mean, if you want to start looking at applications that could cover everything from recycling to conserving natural resources to being concerned about climate change to y you name it. Okay, do we, because God has said, here's why I made you to rule over planet Earth. I would also imagine that this must have something to do with how we care for other people, how, how we care for the poor and the needy and those who can't care for themselves, how we fight against bigotry and injustice in our culture, you know, how we serve others in the context of our home, at school, at work, because we've been made in the image of God, the great king, the ruler over the universe who said, I've made you to rule. Now, unfortunately, we've been made in his image, but the Bible goes on to say that that image has been horribly marred. Okay, sin has marred that image in every one of our lives. You've been made in the image of God, but selfishness and materialism and pride and bitterness and lust and dishonesty and, and you name it have marred that image. So if we want to get serious about ruling as God's vice rulers, something's got to be done to reclaim claim the image, right? That's exactly what happens in relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, the image is restored through a relationship with Jesus who delivers us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. Let me close with this. Okay, the, the penalty of sin, the Bible says, is death. Because we have trended our own way instead of God's way, we've disconnected from the one who's the giver of life. And when you disconnect from the source of life, you die. And the Bible says we, we deserve to die physically and spiritually and eternally. But Jesus came to planet Earth to take the death we deserve to die. That's what he was doing hanging on the cross. He was taking the penalty for sin that you deserve to pay. He was taking it in your place and he was raised from the dead so he could offer you today Forgiveness and new life if you'll surrender your life to him. He can break sin's penalty. He can also break sin's power. Okay, once you put your trust in Jesus on a day-to-day -day basis, he begins to change the patterns of your life and to make them more like God. How does he do that? Well, he puts his spirit on the inside of you and he begins to, uh, the biblical word is sanctify you, make you holy, make you more and more like himself. He uses his word to do that. He uses fellowship with other believers to do that. God has got a great role for you to play in his world. He wants you to be a vice ruler, okay? A vice ruler over the, the planet. In order to do it well, you've got to bear his image. In order to bear his image, you've got to have Jesus. Let's close in a word of prayer. And then we're going to collect our gifts and we're going to sing a closing song. And uh, I will be uh, in the Welcome Center 
at uh, the St. Charles campus on Saturday night and in the Welcome Center of the DeKalb campus on, on Sunday. And campus pastors will be available as well if you have questions you'd like to ask. Pray with me. Uh, Lord God, thank you so much for not only what the small book, as it's called, the small book of Scripture says to us about you, the details it gives us about your, who you are and your purpose for our lives, but also thank you for the big book of creation that scientists are able to study and come away with insights, God, that just blow our minds about your immensity, your greatness. We're humbled by your love for us. God, it's just incredible to think that you made us in your image and you want us to rule your planet. So I pray if there are any here who've never surrendered to Christ that we would do so. And if there are those who have surrendered but wandered off, God, bring us back today so that we could begin to walk in harmony with you and live out your purposes for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name.